So tonight we are looking at the Gospel of Mark. But before I do, I actually really feel quite strongly that I just need to to share like a prophetic word. So a prophetic word, I guess, is something where we feel that God's spoken to us and that he's got something specific to say to someone. I could be completely wrong, but just as I was praying for tonight, I really felt that there was someone called David who'd come to church tonight reluctantly, perhaps with big questions, big barriers, frustrated to come. But God just wanted to say, look, he's got it. He cares for you. He loves you. He understands your scenario and really wants just to, just to overwhelm you with his love and his care. So I just want to pray for you. I could be completely wrong, but I just wonder if that's someone. I'm happy to talk to you later about that. But I just really get a sense that God wants just to overwhelm a guy called David with his love tonight. So I'm just going to pray for that person. Yeah, Lord, we just pray if there is someone in this room called David who's just having doubts and questions and just feeling very far from your plans and your purposes, perhaps feeling ostracized or feeling out of things. I just pray that tonight he will know a real sense of purpose and hope in you and your loving arms will be right around him, Lord. Holy Spirit, just come upon him, we pray. Amen. Anyway, so I should really be teaching on timekeeping given Naomi's telling off for us all, but I'm not. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark and I guess when we think about the church of our vision to love Edinburgh and to be family and follow Jesus. Really what we're trying to do as a church is say, how do we, when we look at the good news of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, the Bible, the gospels of Jesus, the accounts of his life, how do we love Edinburgh? How do we love this city well? How do we model family? How do we be family? How do we be community together in a way that honors Jesus in a way that is in relationship with him and honors the way we're taught about in the gospels? And I guess most significantly and most importantly is above and beyond anything else, we need to learn to follow Jesus. We need to believe that actually following Jesus is the biggest hope and the biggest option, the, the, the best thing we could possibly do with our lives. That's what we believe as the church here, that following Jesus defines and dictates everything else in a really positive way. And I thought I'd just start by sharing this image that my four-year-old son made in preschool. It's got 10 fingers, you've got to question what they're teaching in our church preschool, really. Um, he, I counted he's actually got six. I think he was born in rural Gloucestershire, so that would make sense. That was a poor taste joke, okay. But, but on it, it says, help me be more like Jesus. It says, help me be more like Jesus. And Jensen will often ask my wife and I just to pray for him that he would be more like Jesus. And I guess what I'm saying tonight, really, is that when we look at the stories in Mark, when we look at the Gospels, when we look at the good news stories of Jesus, our first desire, our first hope is that we would follow him, that we would choose to receive it, to respond to it, or ignore it. So Jesus lays down his stories. We, we read about Jesus, we discover Jesus through the Gospels, through the Scripture. And we have an option to say, you know, was he just a good teacher? Was he a healer? Was he a prophet? Was he the son of God that he claimed to be? Was he just a rebel? Was he just a bad person? We look at these stories and we have the option to respond in a way which feels appropriate. But for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, and as we follow Jesus, our heart's desire, our focus is about how do we become like Jesus? We look at these biographies, these first-hand accounts, these stories of Jesus and say, I want to follow him and I want to learn what it is to be like him. I believe that the best way I could possibly live is to follow and imitate the life of Jesus. And we're looking at Mark. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. I guess the best way I can sort of just differentiate Mark from the other Gospels is that Mark is 
as all the Gospels, a first-hand personal biography of the life of Jesus. It's a good news story. It's his version of events. And to give you an illustration of, I think, how Mark differs from the other other three accounts, I was at a wedding about three or four weeks ago. And after a wedding, some friends and family asked my wife and I what about the wedding. And my wife, Adele, she said, you know, oh, my goodness, the bride, she looked absolutely phenomenal. Her dress was like the most perfect ivory white. Is that a color, ivory white? Sounds good. It was just like, it was almost it was like tailor-made perfectly for her. It fitted, and she just walked like with majestic kind of grace. It was incredible to see her flow along the aisle. And her bridesmaids, they also looked amazing. They were just astounding, so, so beautiful. And all of their makeup was just absolutely spot on. The bridesmaids and the bride have like hair in like a really nice mop. Is that a thing? That's, that's what I'm using. Like the hair looked incredible. And the ushers, wow, they just looked so handsome and brilliant. The church service, I've never been to such a good church service that celebrated the life of a couple as this one. It was phenomenal. The, the minister was fantastic. The worship was great. The, the talk was just out of this world. And then we went to reception. We went to reception and how can you make salmon and cucumber canapes taste so good? They were just out of this world. The steak was mouth-watering. The, the meal was just incredible. And then the after party, what an after party. It was incredible. It was just so much fun. It went on to the early hours. Good chat, good conversation, the best dancing in my life. And sort of two hours later, she's finally stopped, stopped telling the story about this wedding. If people ask me, they're like, you know, how's the wedding? Bride, looking good. Food, tasty, but nowhere near enough. That's about as much you're going to get from me, okay? What we have with Mark is a guy who wants to get to the points. In fact, only on one occasion, the whole of Mark, does he give his opinion. The rest of it is just his observations. It's just what he sees and observes. And the idea is that us, the readers and the listeners, decide, do we follow him? Is he just a good teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he a guy who is rebellious? We don't want to follow. We look, he's trying to set, display the facts. He's trying to display what he saw and allow us to decide who he is. It's fast-paced, it's nitty-gritty, it's just to the point he just gets to the facts and what he sees, leaving the reader, the observer, the chance to say, who is he? What do I make of this guy, Jesus? Is he worth following? Is he really the son of God? Is he really the Messiah? He gets to the point, he's punchy, he's fast-paced, he just wants to say, this is what I've seen, this is my first-hand experience, what do you make of him? And they reckon that Matthew and Luke use Mark to actually kind of create their gospels so mark is the shortest of the gospel and matthew and luke they reckon use mark in order to form their gospel and then john kind of is this the fourth gospel that's got like a lot of color and imagery as well so mark really is just bare bones and facts and says look what do you make of this guy jesus and last week hannah spoke to us about kind of the desire of the gospels to see that actually it's about god's kingdom coming to earth the now and the not yet, that Jesus wants to come to earth. He wants his people to see Jesus worked out in the communities and the world we live in, in the society we live in. And this week we're in Mark 2. And before we look at today's passage, I want to just describe what's happened. So Jesus has literally just healed someone. And understand that in the days of Jesus, that wasn't actually that radical. That wasn't actually that shocking. There was other people who were claiming to be healers. There were other people who understood to heal. 
There are also other people who would be prophets and accepted as prophets. That wasn't that extraordinary. That wasn't what was winding people up. What was winding up the religious teachers and the Pharisees of the day was that Jesus was being claiming to be the Son of God. So he healed this man. He raised this man from, you know, he raised this, he sought this man out. He healed him and saw his well-being come to fruition. But alongside it, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, and only God can forgive sins. Therefore, he's claiming to be the Messiah. So the Pharisees and the religious teachers are getting angry at him. How dare he claim to be the Son of God? How dare he claim to forgive sins? So we're in Mark 2, the end of Mark 2, verse 13 to 17. If you've got a Bible, great. If not, then it'll be on the screen. So Mark 2, 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. There were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy you need the doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to sinners. So this passage is based in Galilee. So Galilee, I think there's going to be a picture on the screen. So Galilee is kind of north of Israel. And where the red marker is, is the Sea of Galilee. And just to give you a sense of kind of how Mark, the journey of the Gospel of Mark goes through, the first kind of third of Mark... Is based around the region of Galilee, and it's Jesus' teaching, it's his stories, it's the miracles, it's the things that people observe of him. And everyone's questioning, you know, who is this guy, Jesus? What, what, what has he really come to do? Can't quite figure out his identity. The middle third is the journey to Jerusalem. So his disciples are on a journey to Jerusalem, which is south of this map, and they're on the way to Jerusalem. They're trying to work out alongside Jesus, is he just a prophet, is he a good guy, or is he the son of God that he claims to be? And for those of you who have been around church for a while, the last third, the final kind of climax of the book of Mark is that he died on the cross and rose again. And we're left with the option to say, did he really rise again? Did he really conquer the world and change the world, turn it upside down by living after he died? So it's in Galilee and he's likely to have been in a boat. So geologists and historians of the day would say that he was at the edge of the lake and he was in a boat right at the edge and there had been literally thousands of people gathered around him. And experts would say that it was like a natural amphitheater. So there was a real sense that like he was in this, yeah, I guess, amphitheater and just thousands of people kind of around him listening to his teaching. And there he was and he sees this guy, Levi. He sees this guy, Levi, who's a tax collector in a tax collector's booth, according to the scriptures. So he sees Levi there. And understand that by walking to Levi, it's a very intentional move. Jesus knows what he's doing. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that he picks up this guy. He knows what he's doing. And when he comes to us and he offers each and every one of us the opportunity to respond to us, he comes to us tonight and says, I've chosen you. I'm coming for you. I want to meet with you. I'm not going to force myself upon you, but I want to have a relationship with you. He comes to us. And so he sees Levi, and 
like I say, we struggle in today's kind of language to understand really what a tax collector is. But the, just to get us kind of in the right direction, I want us to think about parking attendants. So here's like a, a picture of some parking attendants, right? This was actually from a friend of mine called Lewis Rosewood, who some of you will know. And I'm not quite sure what's happening, like whether kind of the guys at the end are about to beat up these guys for not getting enough fines. Maybe that's what it is. But this was taken in Brunsfield. Just as an aside, if we could make a deal... If you ever see all the parking attendants together, if you could just text me, because then we know that it's free parking everywhere else. Is that okay? <laughs> That's obviously not a Christian thing to do. Okay. But parking attendants get a pretty bad press in many ways. They're the ones who kind of catch us out for dark parking on double yellow lines. They're the ones who give us fines if we're parking too long in our bays. But they're the kind of people in the right direction in terms of society at large are not particularly valuing and liking what they do. But we need to understand as we look at tax collectors, they were far more despised and hated and just really considered to be the scum of society. As we think about them, we need to realize that they're just despised and hated and just not part of the society in a whole new level. And the reason was on a number of levels that they were politically ostracized. So, you know, Christmas Herod? Well, his son Herod Antipas was ruling over over Galilee. So he was the ruler over Galilee and he wasn't a popular ruler by any standards and Levi was taking taxes for Herod Antipas. So if you look deeper into this text, what's happened is a tax collector's booth is a border and at one point you could get through for free but now because of Levi and because of Herod Antipas, they now charged and he got charged at his border. So he wasn't particularly popular because he was charging at a border. Equally, he was aligning himself politically with Herod Antipas, who was not a liked and respected leader. So he was just disliked and just people did not value him on a whole number of levels. And socially, he would have been an outcast. So when Jesus came to him, everyone around there knows that he was beelining for that guy who was on the fringe of society, that guy who just everyone knew but wasn't liked and wasn't respected by the world around him. It's also very likely that he was corrupt in the way he dealt with taxes. So the tax collectors were despised because they so often took too much money or cheated people. But what's most significant about this passage is that the Pharisees, they didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was hanging around with him. Because by hanging around with a tax collector or someone that society deems as a sinner, there's a danger in the Pharisees' eyes that you can be contaminated by them, that you can have their sin, their mistakes on your life. They didn't hang around with him because it would make them feel weak and make them look less. It would be dangerous for them to associate themselves with someone who was the scum of the earth, the lowest in society in the days of Jesus. And it's easy to think, isn't it, like... Oh, that's, that's outrageous. But I know time and time again, I can be worried about how other people make me look. People I associate with, how do they make me look? How does that affect my image? But Jesus goes to this guy. And it's easy, isn't it, to wag the finger and think, well, how dare these people dislike Jesus? Sorry, dislike the fact that he's gone to this tax collector. How dare they, you know, not stand up for that tax collector? But recognize when we're talking about this guy, It's the same as in today's societies of paedophiles or terrorists. Jesus called one of his disciples who was the equivalent of a terrorist of his day. He's gone to the lowest of society, the ostracized, the vulnerable, and he's beelined for Levi. And imagine as he walks towards Levi, 
Imagine that. <gasps> How dare he? How can he go to that guy? He doesn't deserve it. What's Jesus thinking? Why would he associate himself with this person? But Jesus comes to Levi. Jesus walks towards you. Jesus offers a way for us. He comes to us and says, will you receive me? Will you accept me as your Lord and Savior? He comes to us. And interestingly, note that it's not that Jesus doesn't condemn sin. If you look through the New Testament, Jesus condemns sin more than anyone else. Jesus condemned sin more than anyone else. So the Pharisees weren't just angry about that. What they were angry about was that Jesus wasn't being particularly sensible about who he associated with. And he goes to this guy. He goes to this man. And socially, he accepts him. He suddenly becomes his friend. Now, to be twee, to be cheesy around it, Jesus comes to us and offers to be our best friend. A friend who is dependable, a friend who we can trust. He comes and said, I want to accept you. I want to embrace you. He accepts him politically. He comes to him and says, look, what you believe, what you stand for, it's okay. I'm with you. He raises his self-esteem. This celebrity, this guy that everyone's looking at in front of thousands of people goes to him and lifts it up, his self-esteem. But most importantly, he says, come and follow me. He says, come. He says, if you accept me, I can restore your soul. Jesus tonight offers the opportunity for every one of us. Yes, he can be our friend. Yes, he can stand alongside us, whatever we think. Yes, he can support and encourage us. Yes, he can allow for our sins or whatever. But ultimately, he comes to us and says, I restore your soul. No matter how much you've mucked up, no matter how unintelligent you feel, no matter how useless you feel, God says, I want to accept you. I want to put my loving arms around you. Jesus offers you his love. Jesus comes to us. And this smacks in the face of that perception that the church is so often the ones who are anti-sexuality, the ones who are anti-race, or whatever it is, anti-certain people groups. It says, no, 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 whoever you are, Jesus comes from you. Jesus comes to us. He loves every type of sexuality, every race, every gender, every whatever. He loves you and embraces you and says, I want to accept you no matter what you've done, no matter where you are, no matter how stupid or insecure you feel, no matter how unintelligent you feel, I want you to know my love and my loving arms around you. I want to come for you tonight if you'll only accept me. Jesus comes to us for the first time or maybe we've accepted him many times before and he says, look, above and beyond anything else, I want to come to you and put my arms around you and say, look, you are enough because of me working with you. But I think it's actually equally as amazing that as much as him loving this guy Levi, God not only chooses him to be part of his family, he also believes he has a purpose in his kingdom. He also uses him for leadership in his kingdom. What I mean is that not only does he accept him as someone who is chosen and trusted by Jesus, not only does he welcome in his loving arms, but he also says, come, be my disciple. And he calls us tonight when we choose to follow him. Even from day one, he says, look, I want you to have responsibility. I want you to have kingdom authority. I trust you. And if you're anything like me, I came back to work this week and there's voices in your head saying, you can't do this. You're not intelligent enough. There's better people around than you. Why would God use you? And let's be honest, I wouldn't use you guys. I wouldn't use me. 
But God says to us, not only do I choose you, I want to use you to build my kingdom. He calls us and he gives us purpose. He gives us responsibility. Jesus comes to each and every one of us and says, look, yes, I love you. I died on the cross for you. But I want to build my kingdom with you. I want to build it alongside you. And he goes alongside with to Levi and they go back to Levi's house and he's there with the sinners and the outcasts. It just says in this passage that he's alongside the, the sinners and the outcasts and the Pharisees saying, why would you hang out with those guys? Why do you associate yourself with them? But we know, don't we, that food is a real place of intimacy. I want to just tell you about, for a few moments, my most intimate moment over, over food. This sounds really inappropriate. Um, a, a moment of just... Wooing my then wife. I mean, sorry, who uses the word wooing? Um, I was courting. Like, who's courting? Who uses that? Dating. Like, what's, what's a more modern word than dating? Come on, Tamsin, you're quite cool. What? What? Hitting on. No, we were kind of dating. That's cool. Dating will do. We were dating, my wife and I, and I was living just outside London, and she was in. No, that's not true at all. I was in Gloucestershire. She was in London about two hours apart, and we met in Gloucestershire one Saturday night. And, guys, if you want sort of a textbook how not to kind of impress women on the first date, then this is it, right? So we were over a meal having pizza, and within like 10 minutes, I think it was nerves, to be honest, which isn't particularly cool, but I was outside in the park, like, being sick, okay? So I text her saying, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm kind of being sick in a park. And she told me after, but I mean, bear in mind she'd driven two hours to kind of come and be with me. It wasn't the smoothest. We got married, so it mustn't have been such a bad night. But she came over and came, sorry, came out. She paid the bill, which I guess was a, a jackpot. But she told, me, she told me after, she did tell me after that the, the waiter came up to her and said, look, are you okay? Have you been stood up? She hadn't her idiot kind of boyfriend to be was outside being sick. The, the one benefit of this story, I guess the, the, the kind of cloud and the, the, silver, the silver lining of a cloud was that I did get home for the match of a day. So that was a real positive but we know, don't we, that food is a real place of intimacy. Major contracts are often signed over food. Kind of relationships are kind of built over food. And we recognize that community is all about food. And, and don't tell me that food doesn't matter. When I look at your Instagram, 80% of what you do is just take pictures of flipping food. right? So food matters. But we need to understand that in the days of Jesus, the intimacy and acceptance over food is way more significant than what it is today. By having food with someone, you're actually saying, I'm okay with your politics. I'm okay with what you stand for. I'm okay with your religion. I'm okay to be associated with you. Jesus, in social circles, was being completely stupid having food with them. Completely stupid associating himself with them. If you show you this picture of just him around the table, so this... Peter, are you there? Yes, there we go. So this is how they would have... Eight, okay, you lie down and you have like one elbow in and one kind of arm grabbing your food. Kind of uncomfortable, to be honest, and you probably spend most of your meal looking at the person in front of you's back. But there you are. If you show the next slide, Peter, this is me trying to imitate it over a takeaway. Okay, just for your information, I did try it. Wholly uncomfortable. But if we get rid of that slide, because that's going to annoy me. But if, what we need to realize is that this place of intimacy, this place of acceptance was just a huge thing in the day of Jesus. And by Jesus eating with them, he was saying, I accept you. 
I love you, I care for you. No matter what you've done, I'm alongside you. And by lying alongside them, by sitting alongside them, he raised them up. By lying alongside the scum of the earth, by lying alongside those who society had completely rejected and downtrodden, he raised them up. He was alongside them and he lifted them. I was listening to a talk by a guy called Brian Stevenson earlier this year. And he's a lawyer in America, really well respected. And one of the things that he talks around is that the importance of proximity getting alongside people. And he talks around it over death row, and he's dealt a lot of his work in death row. And if you're like me, you kind of shrug your shoulders and think, well, if you're in death row, you kind of deserve it, right? As in, you're not going to be in death row by accident. You've done something which is horrendous by society's eyes. But his desire is that people on death row would know what justice is for them. His desire is to stand alongside them. To give you an example just of kind of one of the situations he's dealing with was a few years back he had a young lad on death row, uh, death row and he had murdered his mother. Sorry, murdered his stepdad, if that's completely inaccurate. He murdered his stepdad. And what happened was he was at home and he was with his stepdad and his mother. And he was brought up in a very abusive family situation. His previous dad was abusive and violent and left at an early age. His home upbringing was horrendous. But this stepdad was abusive to him, his mother and him. And alongside this, he was just in a really difficult situation at school and just his life was in a total mess. And he saw his stepdad beat and murder his mother. At least he thought she was murdered. And the guy collapsed because of alcohol, drunkenness, and he was on the floor. And this young lad, fearing for his own life really, and also really angry about the fact that this guy had effectively murdered his mother in his eyes, he then killed his stepdad. The mother came round the next morning and she was okay. He got charged with murder. Now, I'm not for a second saying that murder's okay. What I am saying is it's a very complicated situation. And this guy, Brian Stevenson, says, when I got alongside him, it was quite clear that because of his stuttering, because of his inability to communicate, he wasn't able to fend his case. He wasn't able to stick up for himself. He needed someone to get alongside him. And equally, he didn't have the money or the intelligence to be able to get good law support. This guy was stranded and vulnerable. He got alongside them and raised them up. I think it's amazing what Amy or Ewing said a couple of weeks ago. She said, when we see people in pain, when we see people amidst injustice, what we do is we put our arm around them. We care for them. We love them. And we grieve with them. We feel their pain. And we bring Jesus into that situation. We get alongside them. We feel their pain. We feel their hurt. We feel their distress. We bring Jesus into the situation. Brian Stevenson says the problem with Christians so often is that we try and work out other ways of dealing with injustice, try and work out other steps to help someone, rather than actually get alongside them and work out the way once we get alongside them. So the key is proximity. We stand with them, and then through Jesus, he shows us how to respond and love them and deal with the injustice. Jesus comes to Levi and calls him and says, look, no matter what you've done, no matter how useless you are, I love you and I want to be your friend. I want to get alongside you. I want to restore your soul. He comes to each of us every night and says tonight that I love you. And no matter how inadequate, insecure, hopeless you feel, 
I want a relationship with you. I'm not going to force myself on you, but I want a relationship with you. I want to forgive you. And then alongside that, he says, look, I haven't just ordained a relationship with you. I actually want to work with you to build the kingdom. I want to give you responsibility. I want to give you leadership. And together, he says, look, if you want to be like me, go and stand alongside injustice. Go and stand alongside those who are on the fringes of society. Go and stick up for those who can't stick up for themselves. I just want to spend a few minutes praying. I want to pray for two people. I want to pray firstly for those of us who perhaps for the first time just want to respond to Jesus and accept his forgiveness and his love for ourselves. So I'll do that first. Why don't we bow our heads and just kind of pray over this. Holy Spirit, come, just work amongst us. And I pray for anyone tonight who maybe for the first time just wants to accept your love and your forgiveness. I pray that now they will just know the truth that you lived and died and rose again for them. That you want to offer them eternal life and forgiveness for their sins. Holy Spirit, just come and convict them. I pray that today will be a landmark day as they perhaps feel hopeless, they perhaps feel completely inadequate and useless. I pray that they will know as Levi did, that you choose them, that you come to them and say, look, I want a relationship with you. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. If you want to just grab me after, if you want to talk that through further, I'd love just to respond about that because we want to just do the necessary follow-up if that's your first time but I also want to just give opportunity for us to, to stand up physically as a sign we want to stand up metaphorically for those who are on the fringe of society we have a call and a privilege to stand up for those who are marginalised, to be Jesus in situations that seem broken and hurting, to stand up for those who are bullied at school, to stand up for those who are ostracised in our workplace he wants us to stand up and lie down next to them so that they can be raised up and have just a sense of God's love and care in their lives. And I'm going to ask if you will, just as the band come up, that was your hint, guys, okay? Just as the band come up, I just want just to, if you want to just stand up and say, look, I want to stand up for the sake of those, maybe it's in your neighborhood, your university, maybe it's kind of ending poverty in this city, but saying, actually, I want to stand up for those who God's put in my heart this evening. So you stand up now if you want to do that. And I want to pray for us as we go into some time of worship. Lord, we know that you have a desire to reach this city with your love. We know that you want people to come to know you. But we also know that you want to work through each and every one of us. That the lost, the downtrodden, the broken would come to know you, would experience your love through us as your hands and feet. And as we physically stand up, I pray that we will stand up in situations that we will take risks socially, that we will take risks politically, that we will do things that society thinks is completely nuts, but for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of those who don't know you. 
Will we wrap our arms around people who feel ostracized, who feel downtrodden and bring you into those situations, Lord? We pray we won't be a people who are judgmental, people who just condemn people, but people who love people and point people to you. Holy Spirit, come. Equip us, we pray. Amen.